Don't you worry about a thing. Jesus Christ is still the King. Welcome to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr on Iowa Catholic Radio. Every Wednesday, diving deep in the truth of the Catholic Church and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good, live from the Mercy Live Up Studio. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr, coming to you live from Des Moines, Iowa, and the Mercy Live Up Studios, 1150 AM, 88.5 FM, 94.5 FM, and streaming live, iowacatholicradio.com. And if you have the good luck, fortune, grace, blessings to have Blessman Ministry and People's Abstract Company's Iowa Catholic Radio app, you can listen to us darn near tootin' anywhere. Bud, how are you doing today? I'm okay. I heard that um, we've got this Pickermans thing going on this week. I know. So we had uh, <clears throat> we had to to decide what um, sandwich to get, and there was a bit of fighting over it. I'm not going to say who it was. Mike I Mano. tried to claim the Italian sandwich, but Lee and Eddie was like, "No, yeah, then uh, you uh, won't." <laughs> Mike Mano had numero uno, which the only reason I was picking it is because it had the most meat on it. But uh, so in the end, what I decided is the beef barbecue sandwich is probably the way to go for us. But um, what about our show? Screams beef barbecue. Our show is meaty. It's full of substance. <laughs> uh, we're saucy. You might have sauce on yourself afterwards. Uh, BBQ is like bow bud question mark. <laughs> so I really think June twenty sixth through thirtieth. If you want to show um, your affinity to our show, it's really important <laughs> to go down and get the barbecue beef. Fifteen um, percent of every purchase goes to uh iowa catholic radio so that's through june 30th yeah i really want to beat out the other sandwiches so i'm okay with catholic women now and their blt winning but i hope the beef barbecue is at least second place yeah like at least we can beat john we really need to show john show john who's boss um as always we are underwritten by mercy college of health sciences um like i said we're so into the swing of things bud that we actually are doing midterms as we speak. Yes, midterms. So this is kind of a crazy week for students a bit. Um, but I, I don't know. We had a, our first round, bioethics, and I felt like they did pretty well. But um, yeah, that's where you get into the academic rigor of the semester. We get to see what everyone knows and how well they know it. It actually, it's not as bad of a time as everybody acts like. It's actually a lot of fun to uh, to make students cry. No, I'm kidding. To, for them to show off what they actually Well, if know. they need um, some extra grace, we've been mentioning the last few weeks that we now have the Blessed Sacrament in the chapel after the Feast of Corpus Christi. That's right. That's so that was a big step. Right there, they can go get some extra grace. Also, as always, underwritten by uh, Cartridge World. Cartridge World is an industry leader delivering high-performance printing products that help you save time, money, and print great. It's perfect for businesses, home offices, college students, or busy moms trying to find affordable printing supplies, including ink, toner, paper, or printers. Business customers pick up and delivery are available. The products are guaranteed or full replacement. That's 801 73rd Street in Windsor Heights, 515-564-7400, or online at cartridgeworld.com. Thank you, Cartridge World. So another thing that we got to make sure to let our folks know out there in the listening land, bud, is we are doing our 830 show um, for a few more times we got uh this week and next week but then july 12th july 12th is the wednesday right yes july 12th we're starting our new bat channel and our new not new bat channel our new bat time same bat channel new bat time 10 a.m to 11 a.m i i think uh bud and i both night owls are going to appreciate this uh, a little bit better what do you say bud yeah i want to guarantee our listeners right now a higher quality product <laughs> <laughs> Because at 10 a.m., I'm just much more uh, in the flow of human society than 8.30. And I know for the early birds, that just sounds ridiculous. Um, my dissertation advisor, by this day, this would be the middle of his day. And some people have already um, worked out and worked half the day. Right. Done Donated things. blood. <laughs> I think the main thing that I'm looking forward to is that you will have the opportunity to have coughed up half your lung, which yeah. I really think that 8.30, that's the the big thing, is uh, your your yeah. lung is at 25% capacity. No, it takes it takes about seven hours for my body, just like releases all the phlegm for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, I bet you didn't realize, tuning in today, that you were going to get a, a, bi- a biological, you know... Uh, 
whatever it's called. See, folks, already we need to be. We need to just wait till ten o'clock. <laughs> uh, no, what else do we got going on? But I, I think that uh, I saw t- uh, Deacon Tony waving the uh, the Pope uh, on a stick that's asking you to to donate to Iowa Catholic Radio. Do you do you have a, a minimum that you're supposed to do that to us at this point now, Deacon Tony? I'm hoping for a new car by the end of August. <laughs> yeah, there is something about Pope Francis that makes you want to take out your wallet. Just him offering that blessing on the fan. <laughs> Ask for money, dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. I think the the part of this, too, is we're supposed to remind people that the Iowa State Fair is it's not imminent, but it's on the horizon. And we have a jolly good time. Basically, everywhere we go, we have a jolly good time. Pickerman's Deli, the Iowa State Fair. But... I have to admit, there's something about seeing John Leonetti out moving amongst the fogs of the tent in uh, of the state <laughs> fair, corn dogs in his hand, that makes me think about like the early the early days of the church. Probably you're, not yeah. con- corn dogs back then. Well, you're a big fair guy. I know. Yeah, since you've moved to Iowa, you've really fully embraced the fair. Well, I mean, that's sort of just Oklahoma genetics. Okay. Yeah. That's like, you know, what else are you going to do? I will say, I like the fair enough. My wife loves the fair. Yeah. And I can say this because I don't know if she's up yet. Like, she, her family, and, and like, she's, she got this love of the fair from the Kansas State Fair, which is not <laughs> nearly as, as good as, sorry, people who listen to Kansas, but the Iowa State Fair is a lot better. But uh, the idea of just like roaming around and and getting unique fried foods—that's that's kind of paradise for my wife. But Iowa Catholic Radio is going to have a table at this fair. We have a oh, presence, yeah. yeah, multiple tables, multiple tables, right? And always in the shade. It's mm. it's a smart get up. Wonder if is there a dunking booth or anything like that? I feel I feel like that this the, is an opportunity to throw something at Leonetti or yeah, I think dunk him. I think we can make that happen. Okay. We'll try. <laughs> Dunk, Leonetti. <laughs> well, on our show today, yeah, get, yeah. If 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 you can dunk Leonetti for money, wouldn't you, folks? <laughs> well, today on the show, we actually have. Uh, I, so I've had the unique pleasure of being able to interview Dr. Joseph Bottom uh, for my class before. He has one of the best essays I think ever written um, on uh, on the internet. That's for free. It's on first things. Uh, Death and Politics, absolutely one of my most favorite essays ever written. So I've been able to interview him for one of the classes I had back in the day. But he just recently was named uh, a professor of cyber ethics and director of the Classic Institute at Dakota State University. And that sort of juxtaposition, right, of cyber ethics and a classics institute, it was just too much to not want to, like, call him up, get him on the show, and talk about this. When I was previewing this on John Leonetti's show earlier today, you know, John was pointing out that I'm well known of being sketchy about robots yeah. and loving the classics. So I, this is just a show that's going to write itself, it seems to be, bud. But um, this idea of cyber ethics, I, what, what do we have in mind here? I have in view. I think cyborgs. Oh. He's gonna, no, I'm kidding. I, I think it's everything from the internet to just the electronic age. And this uh, project is coming out of South Dakota, which is interesting. Yeah, Daco- was, Dakota State University. Yeah. I, th- I think part of it is that... Uh, they're so far away from everything, they have to do a lot of work on the internet. <laughs> okay. Shots fired towards Leroy Husengay and everyone we know in the Dakotas. The Dakotas. It's a beautiful part of the country. It's very beautiful. It is also like, I think, 50 minutes to every Walmart. Like, no matter where you live, the oh. Walmart is 50 minutes. No, I'm kidding. That's... Well, it's probably crucial. I mean, you don't want to be foraging the sand hills for it. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> right. Daily You're a Nebraskan, so you kind of, you know, know the... Sarah Plain and Tall type lifestyle. I'm kidding. You're from Omaha. That's absolutely not true. Yeah. Well, the Dakotas are a popular vacation spot for Nebraskans. It's kind of Colorado in the mountains, or you go to the Dakotas. Oh, there you go. Well, it's going to be an interesting talk, folks, I can guarantee. So stick around. In a minute, we'll be back. The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. See you in a bit. The Lord said in Chronicles 714, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. St. Mary of Nazareth Church on Tuesday, July 4th at 8.30 a.m. is inviting everyone to join them in a patriotic rosary. Each decade will begin with an historical reading from five national leaders over the past 200 years. Let us pray for our country this July 4th. 
we hope you will join us this week by heading over to Pickerman's Deli. They're donating a portion of their sales to Iowa Catholic Radio. Thank you, Pickerman's. And to make it fun, Catholic Women Now, that's us, is all about the BLT because blondes like to talk. <laughs> Man Up, of course, is the meatball, and it's no surprise that John Leonetti is the Italian sandwich. So stop by Pickerman's this week and let us know which sandwich you like best. You can find Pickerman's in West Des Moines, 6750 West Town Parkway, west of the interstate. We're back with The Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr have the great honor to have on our show Dr. Joseph Bottom, professor of cyber ethics, director of Classics Institute at Dakota State University, author of An Anxious Age and many other books and articles besides. It's great to have you on the air, Dr. Bottom. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks so much for having me. Well, and thank you for coming on. I, I always forget Central Time and Mountain Time, so it's even earlier for you. We were complaining earlier about the show about uh, us waking up in the morning, so we, we really appreciate you waking up to speak with us. So I see, roll across the news feed, that you've been named Professor of Cyber Ethics and Director of the Classic Institute. And I think, wow, those are two things to juxtapose that are just, they have to be interesting. It has to be an interesting story about how that kind of came about, the job itself, and uh, what you kind of see your role going to be in the future. So I guess just to start out, how, how does uh, a professor of cyber ethics start to direct a classic institute, and how do those two things converge? Well, I think the, the purpose uh, for which they're bringing me over to this Dakota State are, you know, involved in my being a South Dakotan and writing a memoir about being a South Dakotan and, uh, you know, always trying to keep myself involved in my home state, even while I edited at the Weekly Standard in Washington and magazines in New York. And uh, I never dropped, you know, my geographical identity. I'm native to the soil. Uh, and... Uh, <coughs> Along the way, and over the past few years, um, even as I've written about the sociology of religion in America in an anxious age, which is basically an attempt to look at what happens to America when the foundational mainline Protestant churches go into their massive decline. They were about 50% of the population in 1965. They're under 10%, about 7% of the population today. Uh, but along the way, I began to wonder if my kind of straightforward uh, sociological reading of America as heavily influenced by Max Weber and as trying to trace out uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's thought, uh, if what, what was happening in America wasn't entirely that, if the other side of the Enlightenment uh, had snuck in a ringer, if the technological changes uh, were as important, uh, as surprising, uh, as involved in what was happening as these political changes and these sociological changes. And I began to worry that this was so, that the computers actually had the computerizing of our social condition, actually it introduced a rogue element uh, and was changing the culture in ways that Max Weber would not have seen, that Alexis de Tocqueville would not have seen. And uh, this worry had been nagging at me. Uh, and so cyber ethics became a, a topic in that great old phrase in which I began to collect string. <laughs> Little bits of stories, I'd save them, I'd file them away uh, for thinking about. But with all my writing commitments, I just didn't have time uh, to do that. I write I, over the last seven or eight years, I've done nothing but write for my living, uh, and magazine articles mostly, and four books. And, uh, and it, uh, so I never had time to devote kind of dedicated thought to this topic. And then uh, this philosophy professorship opened up over at Dakota State, and they got in touch with me, and I went over and gave them a lecture on René Girard, of all things, uh, and, uh, and his relation to the computer age. And they ended up offering me the job, which is an attempt to combine the insights of, of 2,000 years of the thinking of the humanities to the sociological changes and uh, the condition of America today 40 years into the computer revolution. Oh, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, 
sometimes you you go along in life and you kind of wonder how anything really happens. How did this person get this job or whatever? It's always nice to hear a story where the stars align and something that's very needed, like this conversation you're talking about, um, that it just works out and, and falls. Uh, it, everything works out, especially being able to, I know how important South Dakota is to you. I've always appreciated how important South Dakota is to you as someone like myself, who's not lived in Oklahoma for a while, but Oklahoma is always a big uh, thing in my, uh, you know, possession of my heart. So I always love that you did that. So this intersection of being able to do uh, be in the Dakotas and then talk about, the classics and the intersection of the cyber age. I, I don't know. For, for once, it's really nice to hear things work out like that. Yeah. Of course, it hasn't worked out yet. Well, right. <laughs> things, well, things may go horribly wrong once I actually get over there in August. Well, you know, <laughs> that's true. But like, sometimes it's just nice to know that things got off to a, a good start, at least. Um, when it comes to this question about cyber ethics, I think a, a, a very layman-esque type question could be, well, what do we mean by cyber ethics? We, it, we, we know it means something with computers, maybe robots. You know, is it the, the worries of our sci-fi imagination, or is it just the practical sort of ways in which computers do things? Is there a, a, a sort of short answer to try to get someone grounded in what we mean by cyber ethics? Well, it does mean any number of things to any number of people. It's a protean term uh, that refuses to be pinned down. In my own thinking, I've wanted to, to distinguish uh, or to use a very common distinction in ethics, which is the distinction between general ethics and special ethics. Uh, special ethics are the professional ethics, the ethics of a particular field, which don't necessarily uh, adhere or apply to people who do other fields of work. So, for instance, the ethical canons of the American Medical Association or uh, the ethical guidelines issued by the American Bar Association for lawyers. These are examples of special ethics. They're professional ethics within a field. Uh, and general ethics are just all the ethical questions that are, are raised, you know, and that we have. How do we live? How do we uh, speak? How do we treat other people? How do we die? Uh, the, one of the things that's lacking for um, security analysts, which nowadays means entirely computerized stuff, uh, and uh, other people in the computer, computer industry, is any special ethics. There's not a robust, well-grounded special ethics that applies to, or that's been accepted to apply to these people. And I think one of the tasks of uh, ethicians, of ethicists, uh, brought in to think about these things is to develop that robust, uh, well-grounded, and acceptable special ethics for the professionals in the field. Far more pressing, however, it seems to me, are the general ethical questions raised by the extraordinary computerization of our time. Uh, there's a every time you use your credit card, an amazing amount of information is made available. The sum total of huge amounts of transactions you've performed over the years is all sort of there, and the store can respond to it. Uh, there were the algorithms of the computers in the stores can respond to it by making you special deals, offers on things they predict that you'll want. You see this when you buy something from Amazon, and there's this list of things that you might like as well offered at the end of the transaction. Uh, these algorithms will get only better, more and more particularized, and in many ways more and more frightening uh, as these, uh, the data and the sophisticated algorithms analyzing that data end up knowing more about you than your mother does. <laughs> You're listening to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Um, Dr. Bond, this is Bud Marr. Thanks for being with us this morning. Um, uh, when, I, when I hear about your new position... It's interesting to me that the the ideas of the classics are wed with cyber ethics because on the surface it seems like these things could stand in tension. You know, re engaging the classics, classic poetry, or the works of Shakespeare requires this disciplined attention. When we think of the cyber realm, you know, think of like hyperspeed and just kind of a sort of uh, quick access to large realms of information, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think... Um, 
these were what were wed together for your position are sort of like what's the kind of bridge or overlap that's being established here? Well, you know, the president of the university, Dr. Griffiths, uh, has been promoting this large project she calls Mad Labs uh, after the, the town that the college is in is Madison. Uh, and these are cybersecurity laboratories and uh, efforts at training up new generations of computer analysts. The school has very strong relations, receives a large chunk of its funding from places like the National Security Administration uh, in order to raise up the, and educate the next generation of computer analysts. Uh, but uh, while this project was being developed, the dean, uh, Benjamin Jones, said, you know, we really need a philosopher in here with us uh, to, to begin to think about, should we be doing this kind of stuff at all? And uh, that formed a kind of nexus, and they began thinking uh, that uh, what they really needed to do was analyze the, the situation that we find ourselves in, in particular as it relates to the clash between security considered on the national scale, and liberty. And classics is actually an acronym uh, in this context that takes up that, uh, that focuses our work, I think, in cyber ethics on uh, worries about how every advance in security and isolating those who are threats to American citizens, those who are threats to the government, uh, those who are threats uh, to create terrorism, operates at the same time as a diminishment of liberty for the rest of us. And that question of security versus liberty, that all the questions of cyber ethics are in fact echoed in other fields at other times through the long analysis of the great philosophical tradition of the West, the great theological tradition of the West, uh, the great artistic tradition of the West, we have this body of thought, this corpus that we've received of great and serious thought about ethical questions, many of which, with a little imagination and a little nudging, will apply to these questions that seem to us now so pressing and so dire. The, I, I almost want to um, commemorate something you just said, that there was a, a time in our decade where people were making a college and they literally said to themselves, we need a philosopher in yeah. here. As a philosophy major, I'm frankly stunned. And, <laughs> and I want to, I want to f make a trophy or an award and go give that to them. Because um, frankly, like I said, I, I mean, not only just in a sort of job marketing sort of way, mm -hmm. but what a wonderful thing to think about that at a place that's really gearing itself up, and like you said, even has the, the, the money behind it is really talking about security, security, security to say, let's get a philosopher in here to make things more difficult, to muck things up, and to ask these fundamental questions about just because we can, should we? Which, by the way, when we teach bioethics, uh, every time the question that really haunts the class the most is when they figure out just because we can do things doesn't mean we should. And so for a, for a university to say that's what we need, that, I, I, that's just frankly fantastic on its own. You know, I'm really glad you brought up bioethics um, because, uh, you know, years ago I left academia after I got my doctorate and I uh, started to work for magazines. Uh, and one of the pressing issues that drew me out of my studies in medieval philosophy and into the public intellectual realm was abortion. And in my lifetime, you know, practicing what I could of being a public intellectual, uh, the related questions uh, that followed upon abortion were very much present. We fought the cloning, cloning flight of, fight of the 1990s uh, and 2000s. Uh, we fought these you know, great biological questions and the ethical implications of them uh, year after year. And I remember uh, a cover in the Weekly Standard years ago that had an article by, the lead was an article by uh, Charles Krauthammer saying we should all be afraid. I think the title was Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid. When Big Blue, the IBM chess computer, had beaten Gary Kasparov, the chess champion of the world. 
Uh, and the corner tag on the front cover was an article by the great UCLA sociological thinker uh, James Q. Wilson saying, cloning, no need to be afraid. And I remember thinking at the time that they had that exactly backwards, that we were in the middle of a great biological golden age in which all kinds of wild stuff was happening and being promised to happen. And in fact, the computer revolution had stalled. In the years since, uh, that kind of 1950s worry about computers rather than worry about the changes of biology. Uh, you see that in 1950s science fiction. It's always computers down the road. Uh, that, that, in fact, turns out to have been more right than I suspected at the time. And I've grown more and more worried as the biological changes uh, promulgated by you know, this golden age that we went through for biology, uh, the bioethical questions have receded a little bit, not much, but a little bit, uh, and what has leapt to the fore in my own experience and my own contemplation of American society uh, is, in fact, the data processing and algorithmic and technological changes made possible by the computer revolution. I think right at this moment, they are slightly more pressing than the bioethical questions, whereas even 10 years ago, I would not have said that. Well, and I think it's uh, interesting to point out how the more that those two start to come together when it comes to questions of like, are insurance companies going to be able to, you know, see your uh, DNA scans or, you know, if the, the processing power of a computer can be, uh, you know, weaponized to use in some of these biological experiments, that the sort of uh, exponential uh, capacities of both will grow. Well, um, Dr. Bottom, we're coming up on the hard break at 9. Can you join us after 9 o'clock to keep this conversation going? Sure, if you'll have me. Oh, wonderful. We will. So stick around, folks. We'll be back around the 9 o'clock hour. This has been uh, a fantastic conversation. You don't want to miss out on this. So uh, The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marsh, speaking with Dr. Joseph Bottom, uh, professor of cyber ethics and director of the Classic Institute at Dakota State University. We'll be back here in about two minutes. Stick around with The Uncommon Good. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Helping you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Iowa Catholic Radio. Thank you, Big Red Q Quick Print, for underwriting the sports report. Family owned and operated since 1980, Big Red Q Quick Print is a full service print shop ready to help you with all your printing needs with speed and accuracy. Forms, manuals, brochures, letterhead, envelopes, business cards, custom invitations, design and bindery. Big Red Q Quick Print, located across from Merle Hay Mall. Online at bigredq-demoin.com. Big Red Q Quick Print. We make printing easy. Catholic education provides the best opportunities for academics, sports, the arts, and service. Yet many feel it is financially out of reach. Well, don't let that stop you. Catholic Tuition Organization can help you with tuition so Catholic education can be a reality for your children. Go online to ctoiowa.org and click on Tuition Assistance. The bottom line, it's for the kids and for their future. Iowa Catholic Radio, 1150 AM, 88.5 and 94.5 FM. Corel Contractor serves Des Moines and Central Iowa for all earth moving and excavating needs. Family owned since 1959, Corel Contractor will complete a project you can be proud of on budget and on time. Corel Contractor, 515-221-9669. CorelContractor.com. This is Father Zach Kowski, chaplain of Dowling Catholic High School. Pray with us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Iowa Catholic Radio, KWKY, and K233BT Des Moines, and KIHS Adel. It's 9 o'clock. Don't you worry about a plan. 
Christ is still the King. Welcome to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr on Iowa Catholic Radio. Every Wednesday, diving deep in the truth of the Catholic Church and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good, live from the Mercy Live Up Studio. We're back with The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Coming to you from Mercy Live Up Studios, underwritten by Mercy College of Health Sciences and, as always, Cartridge World. Remember, Pickerman's Deli is uh, the place you want to be this week, June 26th through 30th, uh, 6750 Westtown Parkway. You can call in and order 515-440-1856. There's all sorts of sandwiches that all the shows are promoting, but you don't care about any of the others. You want to get the beef barbecue because uncommon good, that's Bo and Bud sandwiches. Remember that. Pickerman's Deli, 515-440-1856. Today on the show, we have been talking with Dr. Joseph Bottom, uh, professor of cyber ethics and director of the Classic Institute at Dakota State University. It's been a wonderful conversation so far talking about this intersection of cyber ethics, the classics, and what that says about our society today. If you want to listen to that first part of the show, just make sure to jaunt on over to The Uncommon Good. Uh, you can pick us up on iTunes. We have podcasts there. You can also look on our Facebook page, The Uncommon Good, with Bo and Bud. Uh, Dr. Bottom, thank you for sticking with us at the top of the hour. We've been uh, really digging into this idea about cyber ethics and the classics. One thing that I think immediately of, and uh, this actually relates to uh, the guest we had on last week, Dr. Jacob Howland, he's pointed out that the Ring of Gyges myth in Plato's Republic is sort of like the gift that keeps on giving. That there's really not an age that can't look to that story and draw some conclusion of it. In very brief details for the audience, the Ring of Gyges is just saying, imagine if there's this ring that if you put it on, you turn invisible and, and no one can see you. If you couldn't be seen, how would you act? And in our day and age, the question of could anybody actually be invisible because of cybersecurity seems to be this... Uh, open question on the table, and what does that have to say about ethics? I'm guessing, is that the sort of interplay you think that the classics can have with cyber ethics? Yeah, you know, it's a very dangerous moment right now to come to public attention, uh, because we are all forced uh, in some ways, uh, or at least under pressure, to live public lives in a way that seems unique. Facebook has, uh, you know, millions of Americans on it, and everyone seems to, I'm exaggerating when I say everyone, but, but less than you might think. Uh, everyone expects you to have a Facebook page and post cute pictures of your children and little amusing anecdotes and, and sad news uh, on those Facebook pages. Twitter uh, has millions of people following the statements of one another. Uh, we live at, in a time in which uh, it's very easy to find out about old sins and old missteps. Uh, if you uh, and a bunch of your high school friends as a prank went and stole a bunch of apples from Farmer Wilson's orchard when you were 16 years old, uh, even 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that information would be difficult uh, for someone to find out. Uh, it would be a mistake, a misstep of youth, lost in the midst of time. Now, in fact, uh, you're, it would never go away. It would always show up on a Google search about you. Uh, we live in a time in which publicity and the public presence is very dangerous and, and lacks any sense of forgettability. Uh, at the same time at which everyone is, is for their jobs and everything else is compelled to live a public life, to be exposed in this way. And yet, here's, here's an application. There's a tag from the Roman poet Ovid, which Descartes actually took as his motto. Uh, and uh, it's for a Latin audience. <laughs> it, it runs, Beni vixit, Beni quilatuit. He lives well, who is well hidden. And Descartes <laughs> took that as his motto. The books, uh, for, at least through the Discourse on Method, were published anonymously because Descartes knew in any age, at any time, it's dangerous to rise to public attention because the, the mob is a fickle thing and will turn on you, can turn on you, with incredibly destructive results. 
Uh, and that's a lesson that we seem to have forgotten in the years since Descartes. We, we imagined, even as the United States turned over the last hundred years from being an honor culture to being a fame culture, uh, where public power and public presence is, is measured and made manifest by the mechanisms of fame. Uh, even as that happened, we forgot that public attention is a dangerous thing. You don't really want to be exposed. The example I, I, that's been in my mind is uh, a woman, an American woman, uh, a couple years ago uh, was flying to Africa, and she made a jokey tweet uh, just before she left about the how high the incidence of AIDS infection was in Africa, and she hoped she didn't catch AIDS just flying into the country or into the continent. Uh, and she got on the airplane, and she flew for hour after hour and got to Africa, got off the airplane, turned on her phone, and discovered something like a million tweets denouncing her as a racist, denouncing her as evil. Uh, and the fact that she didn't reply to these tweets over the hours that she was on the airplane only seemed to magnify the, the angry response. Uh, and she's brutalized. She loses her job. There is no apology that she can make that will be accepted by the mob. Uh, and she's, her, she's devastated. Her profession is ripped away from her. Uh, and she, because she came to the attention of the mob. Now, we might think that that's something that's unique to the computer age, but of course, Descartes understood it. Ovid understood it. The great deposit of thought in the humanities at their best uh, have resources for thinking about these questions and uh, you know, recognizing that problems don't go away, situations are not as unique as we think they are. There is always an analogy from past thought, from past history, and in the art and stories of the past. Dr. Bottom, earlier you mentioned that it was a lecture about um, René Girard's relationship to the computer age that uh, that that kind of sparked the conversation with Dakota State. And I, w I was curious about. Um, I I know Gerard's thought is so dense, and we can't tackle it all. Bo and I have used it in class sometimes. To um, uh, his his thoughts regarding the scapegoat mechanism and and how that still functions in many ways in our culture. Is that is, was that sort of the intersection originally? That kind of um, that you talked was. about the mob turning on an individual and just this kind of like we we. We go after a particular individual or group to create a, a sort of cultural cohesiveness or unity. Yeah, I think, you, I think you're absolutely right, except I would put it much more strongly. Uh, René Girard's analysis of what he called mimetic rivalry, which is rivalry and imitation of other people, his analysis of uh, sacrifice and scapegoating uh, in myth and its applications through history, uh, all of this is not abstract thought. All of this is of burning power in our analysis. I wouldn't just say that there's some chance of using Girard to think about where we are today. I would say that the Internet has created, in things like Facebook, uh, the speed of, uh, of the news cycle, Twitter, and all the rest, the Internet has created the perfect arena in which René Girard's theories can be seen to play themselves out. We see sacrifice. We see mimetic rivalry in people's attempts to gain the maximum number of followers by imitating what other people do. And we see scapegoating and the particular, you know, the picking of someone to blame. We see an unfocused anger uh, looking for an object to focus itself upon. Uh, and thereby make all of us who agree about certain issues feel a sense of community with one another. All of this is Girardian, uh, and the Internet has created this arena. I mean, you know, it's a little difficult to see uh, what Girard is out after and what he's trying to explain when you're trying to analyze the culture of ancient Rome. Uh, it's there, but you have to concentrate on just a few places where the Girardian, a few times and moments where the Girardian analysis seems the best explanation mm -hmm. of what has bubbled to the surface enough that the writers of ancient Rome would comment upon it. Now we get daily examples of it in Facebook, in 
uh, fake news in all that's going on on the Internet. This is the perfect arena in which to see this. I would point out that someone uh, who understands this is Peter Thiel, the libertarian uh, Republican, who was a student of René Girard's at uh, Stanford. And Thiel looked at uh, the Facebook project as it was brought to him by the young Mark Zuckerberg for funding. And he had exactly this thought, that this might be an occasion in which the social pressures that René Girard described would find an arena to play themselves out. So he made an investment of, you know, something like $50 million in uh, the original Facebook. That's an investment that's now worth a billion dollars. And he made that investment out of having taken René Girard's classes at Stanford. It's a, so there's actually even a financial connection to the Girardian insight here. But, of course, René Girard thought all of this was a bad thing. <laughs> right. Uh, not a, a, you know, a surprise uh, uh, opportunity for investment. Uh, he thought that Christianity, he came increasingly over his life to think that the Christian revelation was our only chance of escape mm. from this cycle of scapegoating to build community. Uh, and he worried constantly that as the Christian message is both triumphant in some ways and lost in other ways, uh, that that we we no longer have the capacity to propose Christianity to the larger culture as the escape from the satanic foundation of community. This is the Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph Bottom, professor of cyber ethics and director of the Classics Institute at Dakota State University. Dr. Bottom, that I, I, that captures so much. I mean. Um, I always I feel like we can go an hour and a half talking about what the insights just from those set of comments, because there's one thing about the speed of imitation. So just when people hear mimetic theory, all mimesis is the Greek word for imitation, essentially. And the idea is that deep within human psychology, human sociology, is that we learn things by imitating others. And this is, in some ways, it's not bad. This is just who we are. You learn to talk, imitating the sounds that you hear. Uh, you learn a lot of your ethics simply by imitating your parents and your peers. Uh, but you can also imitate all of these bad desires. And uh, like you said, they can rifle out of control until we, uh, we need a scapegoat in order to all hate the one person so that we can have social cohesion. The thing about Christianity, of course, is that Christ um, willingly sort of steps into this triangle of, of desire and tension and allows himself to be the scapegoat and loudly proclaims it and then seems to ask his followers to do the same. But part of the problem with a cyber age where we have all this instantaneous um, information and in many ways we ourselves as individuals become abstractions seeking, you know, we want to belong, but it, it's it's strange. We can talk to all these people, and so belonging stops seeming to be positive, and it's more about us saying who we're not, that Christianity itself can start to be one of these communities, uh, just one more sort of commodified choice on the Internet, and that that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind if we're going to say something like Catholic social teaching is not to be one more rival group that you can pledge your consumerist allegiance to, but there has to be this way in which, because we worship the crucified one, um, that we're willing to break this pattern in big ways and small ways, but continually in our lives. And maybe that's something about everyone out there, like you said, can do, is do we use things like Facebook or Twitter um, as if we worship a crucified Lord who wants to break these rivalries instead of stoke them? Well, the, yes, I think that's exactly right. And the question is uh, that we have to ask ourselves, and it seems to me that cyber ethics uh, is poised to analyze and perhaps to arrive at an answer to, is are these neutral tools which can be turned to good or turned to evil? Uh, the Twitter, Facebook, uh, the Internet itself, the computer revolution, and all that it's brought us. Uh, many of us think that it, that, that it is. You clearly think so. You post these 
uh, interviews that you do and the, the program, uh, the radio program, it doesn't just fly off on radio waves. You post it as podcasts, which is a great fruit of the computer revolution uh, that no longer is just people who are within driving distance right. who can hear the great work that you do. Uh, and that's treating the Internet as essentially a neutral tool that can be turned to good by those willing to do good or trying to do good. Uh, but in other ways, we have to think, well, is Twitter something that can be turned to good? Uh, are, these, are there occasions and arenas which cannot? St. Augustine looks at, uh, in the Confessions, looks at the stadium, the arena where the gladiator fights are going on, and he doesn't see that this is a neutral tool that can be turned to good. He thinks it's, it's an arena inherently soaked with blood uh, that cannot be turned to good, but that must be destroyed. Uh, and, you know, that's, a, that's another possibility. I don't believe that that's the case with the Internet, but unless we go into an analysis of it with that possibility in mind, swaths of the great Western tradition of theological thinking, of philosophical thinking, and of aesthetic thinking would be closed off to us. Dr. Bottom, earlier Bo was saying he's excited about uh, a school that's like embracing philosophy and not moving further away from it. I'm, I'm thrilled that a person of deep faith will be teaching you know, at a place like Dakota State. And I know when you were editor for First Things, you were primarily writing and publishing for an audience of faith. In this context, you'll be interacting with individuals from diverse backgrounds. And um, how do you think faith, your faith is going to bear on the work that you do in this context? Um, insofar as uh, I'm not taking up the specific issues of my faith in terms of the Internet, and, and I, I will be doing that as well in my writing and my thinking, uh, but in general, it seems to me that one of the advantages that being a person of faith offers those who undertake intellectual journeys like the one I'm setting out on now um, is it offers us the great benefit of seriousness. We know that thought has consequences. We know that it's important that we think our way through these things. And maybe most of all, we know that the work of the mind is not morally neutral, but must be weighed to see whether it is good or bad. Uh, and that kind of seriousness brought to any field uh, is going to help uh, one think one's way through this field. It's going to help one realize that one can't take, just take positions for the sake of taking them and see what happens, that it's not enough to be clever. One also has to be wise. Uh, and that you know, desire to achieve wisdom, not the claim of wisdom, that's what the sophists claim to have, but the love of wisdom, that's what the word philosophy means. Uh, the attempt to position oneself to seek wisdom uh, because one loves wisdom uh, is, it seems to me, a gift that, can be, that uh, is given to and can be intensified by those who start with the love of the truth, the love of the way, and the love of the light. Uh, Dr. Bottom, this is all, I, this has been fantastic and, and very timely. You know, sometimes I think people will think, oh, Catholic social teaching, you know, what does it have to say about today's world? And if anything about this interview has shown, it has immense things to say about what's happening right now that, so to speak, is kind of rushing underneath uh you know our, our very eyes and maybe that what makes it hard to see is it's so fast and it's so present to all of us i think about combining those last two series of comments about the need to be wise and then understanding how to use technology because you know maybe the amish are right you know the the wise thing to do is to you know only use technology from 1850 forward clearly bud and i don't think that you don't we're all using this technology but the question starts to be, what is the wise way to engage that? Because on the other side of the Amish, right, would say uh, to totally embrace technology. Or uh, another way would be, you know, only embrace technology if, it is, you know, if we can act like it can be purified completely before we use it. But it seems to me we're stuck in the middle. We need to have our voice heard about these manners and in these mediums. But how do we do it in the intermediate 
And it seems to me that this might be a sort of counterintuitive example, but we kind of need to be like an infection or a virus. And what I mean by this is if we're not willing to, so to speak, spread ourselves on the airwaves, uh, on the Internet where we can, um, we're, we're, we're not doing our part. And maybe like for right now, the best thing we can do is be that nagging cough of the Internet that it just can't get rid of us, right? That maybe that's the sort of situation we find ourselves in. But I don't know, maybe that's too squirrely of a, a metaphor. <laughs> no, I, I know what you mean. Uh, here's a thought I've been developing. The great glory and benefit of the Internet is that it allows like-minded people to find one another. The great horror of the Internet is that it allows like-minded people to find one another. Right. <laughs> Uh, so that, you know, nothing has been, ever been better for the people who collect stamps than the Internet, because suddenly the market is transparent, uh, you can see what's actually available, they can talk to one another, information is available that used to be available only to people who collected a small library of specialized books. Uh, for the philatelists, the people who collect stamps, this is a great thing, uh, for the people who want to do child molestation and neo-Nazis, the Internet is, in exactly the same way, a great thing. Uh, it used to be hard to find your fellow uh, Nazi. Uh, now it's easy. Uh, and this, this kind of dual problem, or this dual effect of uh, the Internet, is uh, you know, something that... We can't escape. Now, there are those who think that we can abolish the bad uses of the Internet. We can minimize them. We can get rid of them. Uh, but, of course, that creates its own set of questions about authority and power and who's in charge. Because there are those who, if they gained power, would prohibit the religious uh, and religious websites from... Uh, promulgating what these people would think of as hate speech, which is just religion per se. Uh, the Internet has made possible the most extraordinary uh, vileness and failure of manners to read the comments under any news article or editorial, even at major newspapers and websites, uh, is just extraordinary. There was a piece the Washington Post ran a few months ago, a terrible, awful piece, about uh, the computer scientist David Gelernter and his meeting with uh, Donald Trump uh, to talk about science. And the Washington Post ran a piece calling this extraordinary man, one of the youngest people ever to get tenure at Yale, uh, calling him anti-intellectual. <laughs> and I ended up writing about that, but along the way, of course, I had to read the Washington Post article. And I looked at the comments under it, and there was a, there was a comment there among many other awful comments. There was a comment there about David uh, having lost his hand, part of his hand, to the Unabomber. Uh, but at least he had another hand so he could masturbate to pictures of Kellyanne Conway. Jeez. Now, this was on the website of the Washington Post, which is as uh, occupies real estate in American media as large as any other. And I thought, what kind of world are we living in in which that kind of just awful uh, skin-crawling uh, vileness could be there on the Washington Post page. The apparent anonymity of commenting has brought out, as Rene Girard suspected it would, uh, has brought out the worst instincts uh, and in, in the American population. And it has made a kind of rivalry and race to the bottom possible. And this is, it seems to me, uh, is destructive of the very communities that the internet seemed poised at one point to form yeah dr bottom um you know as you talk about those things and mention the comment sections i know one temptation for myself when we think about harnessing this technology in positive ways you know there's that desire to want to proclaim the truth of the gospel in that realm 
There's also the temptation sometimes, I think, for me, like if I can just have one more argument that I win online, like somehow the faith prevails. And I, I think our faith has something to offer us here as well, where we think about the rhythms of the church here and things like that, and this balance between feasting and fasting. And there is a way in which we have to step back sometimes, right? Where um, I think of the recent work of Cardinal Sarah about this kind of like dictatorship of the image that stubbornly hates silence. And so it, it feels to me like if we're going to be able to speak um, with substance in this realm, we also have to cultivate silence and be able to, you know, I don't know, instead of just reaching for your cell phone to check Twitter first thing in the morning to pray a morning offering, something like that. Oh, absolutely. And this is particularly pressing among the young. A British study uh, done two years ago uh, found that people under age 20, 16 to 20, check their cell phones for texts and messages 85 times a day. Uh, which means that they're, they're basically become fetishes. This is, this is their real life, not what the teacher is saying at the front of the room, not the family dinner, not interactions with other human beings. The single thing which is done most regularly and most often with the most discipline and certainty is checking their cell phones for messages. Uh, and that needs to be brought under a rule in which we understand this. I think I'm going to propose for the first rule of thinking about cyber ethics, this fundamental fact that the virtual is not the real. Oh, man, that, that, <laughs> you know, that, that bring, uh, I, I, this is, we're getting to the end of our, uh, of our interview, which is, it's just unfortunate because you say that, and that's just making my mind real with just opportunities of things to think about, you know, because you, you, you see people, uh, advertising things like the Oculus Rift or the virtual reality. I mean, we all remember virtual reality. Everyone acted like it was going to be a big deal in the 90s, and then they showed it to us, and we're like, well, no thanks. I don't need more octagons in my life or whatever. <laughs> but uh, now th- it seems like they're coming back with a vengeance, and they're what they're trying to say is you can live a better life than the one you're walking through right now. And it seems to me that if there's one call that we all have, it's to, to redeem this one and not to act like it's syrupy sweet or that there's something, you know, uh, uh, consumeristically better about it than the virtual life. But that this life, even with its suffering and pain, is superior and, like you said, real compared to the virtual. But that is a, that is a, that is a large mountain to have to climb with a lot of people. Yeah, and the younger they are, the harder it is going to be to convince them. Uh, nonetheless, this world in which we actually live and move and have our being, uh, there's, there, in the Bible's language itself, is that assertion of reality, to have its being. And this world in which we live and move and have our being is a world of pain and joy and blood and life and death, and it is the world as it actually exists and as it is constituted for us in the act of creation. And this is the world uh, in which to be a human being matters. Uh, this is the world in which reality is not plastic and amenable, susceptible to uh, being changed by human will alone. This is the world in which we live and die, and this is the world in which we can be aided by computers, but we must not allow ourselves to be dominated by computers. Well, Dr. Joseph Bottom, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you and that it's good and holy work. And we are very honored to have you on today to speak about this. Dr. Joseph Bottom, professor of cyber ethics and director of the Classics Institute at Dakota State University, author of An Anxious Age and many other works besides. Dr. Joseph Bottom, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking about this today. Thank you for having me. Folks, we'll be back uh, in a few minutes with The Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Mars, stick around, and we'll be closing out the show. The Uncommon Good.
CTI Ready Mix for your support of Dowling Catholic Boys baseball broadcast. CTI Ready Mix has been serving Central Iowa since 2004 and has become a leader in Ready Mix concrete production. With 50 mixer trucks and locations in Johnston, Grimes, Elkhart, West Des Moines, and Carlisle, they are capable of supplying even the largest projects in Central and North Iowa. CTI Ready Mix, 1001 Southeast 37th Street, Grimes, 515-276-9567. Online at cti-ia.net. The Lord said in Chronicles 7.14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. St. Mary of Nazareth Church on Tuesday, July 4th at 8.30 a.m. is inviting everyone to join them in a patriotic rosary. Each decade will begin with an historical reading from five national leaders over the past 200 years. Let us pray for our country this July 4th. We're back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr. Man, Bud, that was it was an intense show, but that was a fantastic show. Yeah, I was really intrigued by the end of that conversation. And, you know, one phrase that you share with our students at the start of the semester is, there's nothing new under the sun. And when I heard Joseph Bottom speak about um, some of the pitfalls of this technology, I couldn't help but think, like, we're facing a new Gnosticism, this kind of hatred for the body and this idea that, your salvation or your meaningfulness can be attained um, through some sort of uh, knowledge, you know, that's that's not bodily. And I think our faith just really pushes up against that. I immediately went to the the thought of marriage, and you know, Saint Paul says that marriage is a is a sacrament. It's a symbol of Christ's love for the church. And there's all sorts of ways that our faith presses us to say the life of Christ that you share between spouses, the life in Christ, it's very bodily. You know, even the, the teaching about natural family planning and this openness to life and really the introduction of children in their life. This is one area that no matter how much we try to use technology to control it, right. they're really God's surprises, these kind of messy surprises. And it forces us away from our computers and our cell phones sometimes to change a diaper and to, to be present to a, a young person who's, who's hurting. But there's all sorts of ways in our lives that we, I think we can become more bodily and know God through these, you know, I was thinking of something like gardening or woodworking and all these ways where, again, we can kind of step away from that temptation to think that life is, is, is fabricated or something that we can control and to butt up against the stubbornness of the world that God's created. Yeah, my thought is that uh, some of the best advice you can give to new parents is to never read the Internet because what you have is these, like, you know, abstract children that do everything perfectly. And if you just do X, Y, and Z, they're fine. I'm like, no, they're still going to poop at untimely times. Yeah. They're going to break things. And that sometimes the internet is the worst place for you to get your uh, understanding of what it means to be a parent. I'll tell you something very bodily that I'm for <laughs> eating. Okay. And I have a place where you all should eat. Pickerman's Deli, 6750 West Town Parkway. Yeah. It is a real substantial place. You can go get a real substantial sandwich Hours, uncommon good, bow, bud, beef barbecue sandwich, meaty, saucy, filling. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just us, bud. And I think people also kind of associate us with uh, the country music that we play. Billy Joe Shaver and uh, Jason Boland, you know, at the breaks and everything like that. So I just thought... Western. Maybe they should pipe that through the speakers as you eat your sandwich. That's right. But... You can make that request. No, uh, I mean, you're going to get a sandwich there that's crafted in a way that uh, we won't mention fast food joints. But, I, you know... How we prepare a meal, you, have you seen the film Babette's Feast? Yes. You know, gathering around the table, this is a moment of grace. And, of course, this coalesces with our celebration of the Eucharist each day. But So you yeah. should go have Pickerman's Feast. Uh, and if you want to call it in, 515-440-1856. It benefits Catholic Radio June 26th through 30th. Mm -hmm. 15% goes to the show. So um, I know I'm making sort of a joke about advertising, but I do actually think eating is a big deal. I, one thing that I, you know, people ask young, how are young people going to stop caring so much about social networks? I'm like, they should go eat together. And especially yeah. if you're in college and you can't afford anything worth anything, you should all bring your different flavors of ramen noodle and eat together. Mm -hmm. I actually think the church, you know, the church is worried about a lot of program and social outreach. If you can get people to eat together, people worry about like different ethnicities getting along Dude, I'll eat your food. We'll eat each other's food. 
Yeah. We can get together in food. So I know that like I need to stop being gluttonous and like defending being overweight, but I will say that there's something to resisting this Gnosticism by caring about each other and each other's eating together. Well, you were sharing with me that on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, you had um, a bowl of pho that was comped for you. Yes. And, you know, what sort of, uh, what kind of long history did it take to bring an Oklahoman, you know, this Vietnamese family together for them to prepare this exquisite bowl of pho and then and give it to you as as a gift on the Feast of the Sacred Heart. The Catholic faith, folks. It's a good Catholic family at 515, the Catholic faith. Um, you know, another thing that we'll say is, uh, I, I'm not trying to say that radio is sort of more tangible than the Internet, but I'm going to anyway. Yeah. You know, like, literally our radio waves pass through your body. It's kind of weird, but you just think about that. Um, but the thing that I really want to say is Iowa Catholic Radio, we're a nonprofit. Um, and one of the nice things, if you help us out by uh, sending money to make a donation, is it's not just paying for something you like, it's being a part of a ministry. And if you think Iowa Catholic Radio is a real ministry that you would like to be a part of, uh, you can make sure to uh, donate to us. There's all sorts of ways to do that. Just check out iowacatholicradio.com. Well, yeah, I know here at the station we're completely committed to the teachings of the Catholic Church. So when you think about using this technology well, um, you know, I... I feel confident we can tell our listeners, like, we'll always be proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And I I liked how you, you brought up today um, uh, the cruciform example of Christ and drawing our thoughts back to that. And, you know, we we joke on the radio, we have a great time here. And But, I, you know, one thing I love about John Leonetti's show is his emphasis on the saints. And we try to do this at Mercy College, too, tell our students about people like Mother Teresa. And if you want to talk about someone who bra- embraced the reality of the crucified Lord— and saw this in other people in taking care of, I'll say, I'll say human bodies because, you know, there was something bodily about the care that she gave to others. It's folks like that. And we want to uphold um, those individuals as witnesses to our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we'd love to have you be part of our ministry. Uh, you can do that through donations. You can do that by praying the rosary coming up at 940. You can do that by listening to the Bible in a year every morning at 5 a.m. And uh, we just... Love having you guys as listeners, and we want to thank you for the time that you've shared with us today. So may the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, reign in our hearts, in our families, in our city, state, in our entire nation, the world, the cosmos in general. This is The Uncommon Good, Bob Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. We will see you next Wednesday. God bless. Have a happy Fourth of July. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. on Iowa Catholic Radio and on the official Iowa Catholic Radio app. 